Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Positive Podcast. A Positive Podcast is powered by oakleyclarity.com. More about them later in the show. If you would like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one, or just because you appreciate this podcast and what we're doing here, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com. If you're curious to hear more information on A Positive Coach and to see if coaching is a fit for you, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com. You'd be surprised how much clarity you can get out from a few sessions of coaching. So today we are very excited to offer season three of our podcast. It's been a while since our last episode and we are glad to be back. And in today's episode, I sit down with Rabbi Aaron Moss, who is a renowned author and lecturer who shares a weekly essay where someone asks him a deep question on Judaism and he very succinctly answers the question in a clear, simple manner. And today he shares his profound insight on navigating life's most important relationships, marriage, parenting, and, you know, some clarity on the journey of raising teenagers as well. And with his remarkable ability to kind of take complex questions and distill them into concise, actionable answers, Rabbi Moss provides us with invaluable wisdom and clarity. So whether you're looking for some guidance on nurturing stronger family bonds or seeking clarity amidst the chaos of parenting, Rabbi Moss' thoughtful reflections will inspire and empower you on your journey through life's most meaningful relationships. So please sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. The Positive Podcast is brought to you by OKClarity.com. OKClarity is the place for any Jew, no matter how religious you are, to find an excellent therapist, psychiatrist, coach, or nutritionist, and it's completely free for you to use. OKClarity.com's professionals are vetted, and they have extensive experience working with the Jewish community. Yes, you can even find me there, because I'm listed as a coach. If you're in the market for a therapist, a coach, a nutritionist, a psychiatrist, or the like, you want to check them out. If you don't find what you're looking for, they have a concierge service where you complete a short form and they will personally match you with someone. Just an important side note, if you are a wellness professional, I highly recommend joining their directory. Their team is amazing and I've received referrals from their platform and OK Clarity has an amazing WhatsApp status with over 8,000 obsessed followers. And yes, I am one of them. Their WhatsApp is a free way to improve your mental health and they post great humor, so you'll laugh too. If you have WhatsApp, shoot them a message at 917-426-1495. Again, that's 917-426-1495. We'll put the links to their website and their WhatsApp in the show notes so you can find those links and go ahead, smash those links. You will not regret it. And now back to our show. Welcome, Rabbi Aaron Moss, a noted author and lecturer to a positive podcast. Thank you so much for being willing to come on to my podcast. And one of the things I really enjoy about your weekly essay is that people ask you these deep questions that are really long winded sometimes and, you know, really deep stuff. And you very succinctly answer the question in a very short, clear, easy way. It's like a real skill that you have. And I think it's very much enjoyed and appreciated by people. So my goal here is to really be able to ask you some, I guess, long-winded questions and hope that you can answer them in a very succinct fashion so that people can get some clarity. Um, so first of all, if you don't mind to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about who you are and your organization so that people have an idea. 
Okay, so my name is Aaron Moss. I'm from Sydney, Australia, born and bred. And uh, I have a, a shul community center called Nefesh in Bondi Beach, um, Sydney, which is like the sort of the, the center of the Jewish community, as well as a, a very eclectic uh, community. And uh, we started, my wife and I started the community in our living room, like many startup Chabad communities. Um, and thank God it grew. We have a nice center of a, a really broad range of people coming in. And I guess that's where uh, the good questions come in as well. You know, people seeking and searching and uh, looking for truth and meaning. And uh, so I get my inspiration from the community and the discussions and questions that, that I receive. Beautiful. So what is your secret though? How are you so able to um, do this in such a short way and in a clear way? What is this uh, skill? Well, I think it came from necessity because I, I I started sending these out in email form, you know, 20 or so years ago uh, as sort of like my weekly email. When we started the shul, I didn't want to just send an email with shul times and asking people to come to shul. I thought to send something that's a bit interesting. And so somebody asked me a question that week, which I'd answered and I, I sent it out, but it had to be for email format. And, you know, with emails, if you can't see the bottom, you're probably not going to read at all. So... Right. I kept it concise and uh, and I guess through necessity, I've, I've kept it that way uh, ever since. And in the last 20 years, I think uh, attention span has shrunk even more. Yes. Uh, so it's a handy skill. It really is. Um, I also know that you have a book coming out or it came out. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I collected uh, after writing for so many years, I collected uh, some of the questions into into topic and uh, and, and put it out book um, it's called can I name my dog Israel um which was one of the questions that I did receive I guess um, and so your life questions that aren't so black and white that's the that's the name of the book so it's a compilation of all your different essays and articles that you've over the 20 past 20 years yeah but divided into into topics now because uh, you know after a while I saw there were certain topics that were coming up over and over again in different you know different questions but on the same genre so you know there's there's, there's love and, and relationships and there's dilemmas and there's pain and suffering um and, and and naming pets okay that's a good one okay so let me start off with a really very important question i think it's a very prevalent question that many of us are grappling and struggling with today it seems that the youth especially are struggling with mental health issues anxiety depression the rate of suicide is up. And we also see this within our, you know, the firm community as well. Our teens are struggling more than ever before. And it's not like we don't have a purposeful life. It's not like we don't have Tyra. It's not like we don't have um, so much goodness in our lives. And yet so many of of us are struggling. What do you, what, what is, what do you think is happening? Why is this going on? What can we do to strengthen ourselves? Well, it seems maybe this is the sort of the tikkun you know the spiritual work of our generation is is to work on these uh, deeper and inner layers of ourselves that previous generations didn't have, I guess, the luxury in a way to do. Uh, um, you know, looking at, at, at the Jewish people and most of our families, you know, a couple of generations ago, it was more just survival and just getting, just being alive. That was what they were struggling to do, uh, and then come from the, whatever, whatever backgrounds they came from, coming to countries like America or Australia, free places, uh, and eventually 
becoming more comfortable. So survival was not the the thing that they're fighting for. And so the next generation are growing up in quite a comfortable world, but the struggles, I guess, are more inward. And I mean, I can I can think of myself, you know, like my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. So um, how do they survive? By just moving on, not by looking back and not by looking in, but just getting on with life. And that was the right thing to do for them. Uh, but then for my parents' generation, they grew up with this knowledge that there, were, there was a lot of stuff in their background that was never spoken about and never dealt with. And it had to be kept under wraps. And so it's going to come out somewhere. And I think that's that's come out in the next generation, perhaps. And and the, the avoid of that generation is to deal with a lot of difficult things that, uh, that are, are not their fault and didn't happen to them necessarily. But... Uh, but it's going to come out somewhere and it's confronting, it's scary, it's challenging, but it's also very real. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying that um, we're kind of dealing with things that weren't dealt with previously. And now it's, this is our generation's um, job to like look inward and start working on ourselves. I think, and I think we're doing a very good job at that. I think, you know, many of us are, I think all of us are really working on ourselves to kind of dig deeper and figure out how we can strengthen ourselves. And with that in mind, I have a question. Another question with regard to that is, you know, we're entering, we just entered the month of other, we have two months of other, it's a double month of joy. And it doesn't feel, I mean, last night we heard great news that um, two hostages were released, which is epic. And we've been waiting months for this, this even just two is just such good news. And at the same time, the Jewish people as a nation, all of us are struggling with finding finding joy in our life, you know, finding the ability to tap into joy when so many of our brothers and sisters are struggling. Um, I think in general, without even the crisis and the war in Israel, we could we struggle with this, finding positivity, finding the ability to increase our happiness. And I'd love for you to speak to that. Tell us, what what is something that we can do to help ourselves during these difficult times to increase our happiness and our own state of positivity? Well, we do have to choose what we expose ourselves to and uh what what we fill our minds with like there there is such a, a an abundance of information out there and we're so flooded with it and the bad news and the negative is is more apparent and it's more in your face you you have to i think temper how much you expose yourself to to the negative that is being being thrust at us and choose the positive and choose looking at looking at, at the good things that are happening. I mean, even in, in, in the situation in Israel, uh, with the tragedy and the pain and, and, the, and the frustration and the, and the anger that we can have uh, over what has occurred and what's continuing to happen, both in Israel and around the world with the rise of anti-Semitism. And it's, it's depressing and it's concerning and it's upsetting. But along with that, look at the very same time as, as what's happening in the Jewish world and the incredible unity that 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 we're experiencing in Israel and around the world, the the the, the level of love and devotion that, that we have, that that we, we how how personally we're taking it, and how the Jewish people have, have really rallied together, uh, the spiritual awakening that's going on, it's such a positive thing. Uh, not doesn't justify the negative, but you choose what you look at and what what you focus on, and I think I think that's that that brings to brings to joy. Um, also, uh, feeling pain is not necessarily a contradiction to joy. Uh, you know, in, in Tanya, it says that that the real definition of depression is when your heart is stone and you feel nothing. 
Right. That that is real depression when when you when you just can't can't feel. But if you're able to cry and feel pain, that's being alive, and that's a part part of being alive. And crying for the pain that is going on, and crying crying for the the sorrow that there is in the world and that we're visit that that we're viewing, that that's a part of being alive, and that doesn't necessarily uh, contradict joy. Uh, it, it's it's a part of of responding of a responsive heart. Uh, you know, when a heart that can be broken is a heart that that, that feels. Um, so we can't we can't numb ourselves to it either. We can't. The idea of, of joy is not to switch off from what's happening and pretend it's not happening, but at the same time to to always find the the positive side to it and the positive that to, to that we can emphasize. So we have to be looking for exposing ourselves to more good news, more positivity, so that we start feeling it more. Hundred percent. And and it's not like you have to dig for it it's out there it, it really is out there it's not on mainstream media uh but you know there, there are there are whatsapp groups that are just good news groups uh and it's worth being a part of those and and seeing the incredible thing that's that's happening in Israel at the moment what if you tell yourself well i need to be updated i need to know what's going on in the war i'm a jew i have to i'm responsible to know what's going on that's true that's true but that, those updates could take like five ten minutes a day and you could really be updated if you think if you think about it i mean most of us are pretty addicted to the news and looking but if you actually think about it, you see the same things repeated and like non-news being made into news. And the amount of time you spend checking the news, uh, you don't see all that much. Uh, you could probably have done that, you know, checked it once a day and seen exactly what happened and not missed anything. Something big like the the, the hostages being freed, you're going to hear about it without checking the news. That, that's that's going to make it to you. Um, but it, it's it's sort of this need as if as if like, um, Israel needs me to be checking the news. I'm helping them by checking, and actually, you're not uh, by by being updated. Absolutely, that that you can do once a day. But but look at the good stories and look look at the positive stories and and be a positive story. Do do positive things. There's something that we, we can all be active about this uh, through in our own communities. You know, bringing more love and and doing more mitzvahs where we are. So be a part of the good news, and yeah, be updated with the news that's happening as well. So okay, so we have to infuse our life with more positivity. What would you say to somebody who has a lot of challenges in their life that they're they're dealing with real struggles? They may have children that are struggling, or spouse that's struggling, or they themselves. Like, what could they do? You know, if it's it's around them all the time. Let's not talk about Israel for a second, but in their personal life, how can they tap into more positivity? Well. They need to reach out for help. There's, we can't do this alone. None of us can 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 go through what we go through on on our own. We need to have a support group. We need to have people around us who care, um, professional help. We have to make sure that we're being looked after. And I think, you know, if we look around, we all know people who have gone through really really difficult things, uh, true pain, not imaginary, and yet they somehow maintain an incredible positivity. And we all know people who go through not such serious stuff, but can complain and quetch about it and be so negative about it all, all day. Like we, we, we see it when we, when we look around. And so you have to come to the conclusion that it's not, it's not how much bad stuff that happens to you that determines how uh, positive your life is. It really is something internal. And again, not, not, not to blame anyone who's going through difficult times that, that it's your fault and you, 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 you know, look on the bright side. Of course it's, it's, it's hard, but you have to have that uh, that inner resilience and that in, inner ability to see the positive. It's easier to train yourself 
to do that before the difficult times come. It's hard to do it when you're in the midst of it. And that's where you really need outside help. You need somebody else to, to be picking you up and lifting you up. It's a little bit of a, a numbers game as well. How much time we spend on something, how much attention we give it, will determine how much of a, a hold it has over us. And so if, if, we, if we make sure that there is a, a good amount of time that we spend every day thinking positively, reading and exposing ourselves to, to inspiring ideas and uplifting ideas and things that strengthen our, our faith, if there's a good chunk of time that that's happening, then the other time that we have to deal with the more difficult things, we have more strength to do that. Whereas if we're flooded with negativity uh, and the positive is sort of outnumbered, we just don't have that that inner strength. Yeah, very true. I want to pivot for a moment and go to a different topic completely. I think this is something that many people that are listening to this podcast um, grapple with. And um, so, you know, we know as Hasidim that the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke a lot about and very passionately about having a large family and how beautiful it is to have a be- you know big family and the benefits and how, you know, how important it is as the job of this generation as well. And um, somebody who grew up with a large family, I, 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 I agree with that. It was a beautiful, beautiful childhood that I had and, and love having lots and lots of siblings. As a parent, though, on the other hand, it's quite challenging. And um, raising a large family is comes with, it's it's difficult. You know, sure, you can say, well, everything that's difficult, everything that's hard for you is also good for you. So it's hard, but it's good for you. And at the same time, and that is true, but, you know, you look around and you say, I'm only one person. I spread, If I have to spread myself between five, seven, eight kids, whatever number, fill in your blank, um, I'm spread more, I'm spread out more and I have less energy and a less ability and I'm giving less and I'm giving less of myself. And, you know, we want to be, we all want to be good mothers. We want to be good wives. We want to, you know, raise good children, especially we look around and we see that children need so much attention. They need, they have such a need for connection. It, it can be quite stressful for a parent. And there could be constant quarreling between the siblings. And, you know, even if you have this wonderful environment that you're creating at home, it can be challenging, quite challenging. In addition to that, the financial burden, you know, today we have school and tuitions and we have all the responsibilities that parents have to provide for their children. And, you know, one might say, well, it's a lot easier to, what, what you know, what is the Rebbe's, what is the Rebbe, I don't want to say what is the Rebbe thinking, but this is really hard. And many people are grappling with this this idea. And I'm sure, you know, you know, we learn what the Rebbe says, we learn the Sikhas, we understand. I'm just, I'm just curious if you can give us some insight into how do these two things, um, how do these two th- ideas simultaneously play out? One being having a large family and all the brachas that comes with it and the challenges that it brings. Well, I think no one can deny that it is hard work and it really is hard work, but I think the value of hard work itself maybe has been lessened a bit in our world. Like we do expect uh, life to sort of be easy and comfortable and leisurely and and we shy away from things that are tough and difficult and demanding. Uh, and definitely having one child is demanding and having a lot of children is more demanding. It's, 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 it's There's no question about it, but if, if you measure the value of it compared to the effort, like this is an ashram, it's another human being, a soul in the world. Like what, what greater achievement can I really say at the end of my life that I've done other than bring an ashram into the world who has a, a, and I've given them the gift of direction of values of something to pass on to the next generation. And if I was blessed with another 
neshama, that, that's, an, that's another gift. Um, it, it doesn't it doesn't make it easier, but I don't think it's supposed to be easy. Mm. Um, you know, I guess again the the sort of the the world gives us this message that of um, that life is supposed to be this sort of relaxing vacation, and and that that's 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 how things are supposed to be, and so anything that's getting in the way of that is an, an, an annoyance. It's it's a frustration. It's not, it's not letting me just enjoy life. Um, but people who do have those vacation lives are not happy. That, that's that's not a meaningful life. Uh, whereas whereas when I can look at my family and say, you know what, maybe I didn't spend uh, a lot of time on vacation, and maybe I didn't. Maybe it wasn't so such a, a relaxing, easy ride. But like, I've got this. I've got these connections and this beautiful world that I've created and and the shamas I brought into the world I think I think that's that's a, a greater gift as far as attention yeah it's it's true like if if I have one child I can give them all my attention um is that going to be so good for the child maybe if that if that's if that's what I've got then that's that's what I'm supposed to do um but I, I look at myself thank god quite a few kids the the parent I was for my oldest child was it was an inexperienced parent the parent I am for my youngest is a much more experienced parent I, uh, on the other hand my oldest child had had us to herself my youngest is sharing us with others that, that's certainly true on the other hand the youngest also has all the attention of all the other siblings and is, is so experiences that in a, in, a, in a different way um what's better what's worse you know for each nasham I think it's the, it's the right thing but um, I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine regretting to have a child. I've spoken to a lot of people who regret not having more. Uh, I, I haven't heard people. Maybe people wouldn't say it, but I haven't heard people say oh, I shouldn't have had that last those last few. <laughs> uh, that sounds terrible. I don't think anyone would ever say that. But yes, it is true. Really funny uh, things. So I hear all that, and I and I agree with it. That basically we're a generation that thinks that things are supposed to be easy. But then well, I just want to push back at that for a minute. Like the whole way that the Rebbe taught us was like, we don't think about Yiddishkeit as this is fair to Zainiyid. We say it's good to Zainiyid, right? The whole idea is to look for that. Like let's present everything in this positive, good way. And sometimes it feels that, I guess, you know, this is what I'm saying is that we're hearing from the Rebbe about having a large family and having these brachas in our life. I guess at the same time, if you're coming at it from a from a society's kind of view of that it's going to be easy, that's not going to work. But you have to hold both truths. You're saying that we need to know one thing is is that it's supposed to be tough. It's supposed to be challenging. It's not supposed to be easy. And yet somehow when we are struggling with a child that's not listening or a child that's not following or quarreling, fighting with their siblings, and you know, or or like you said, you know, I can look back at my life and say I brought these neshamas into the world and look at them. They are following my values. But what if that's not true? What if you brought children and they're choosing different paths than you and different ways than you? You might be able to say, you, you know, still, it, it's it's hard to look at it from that same point of view. So I guess I guess my question is, is all these ideas could be true at the same time and they're hard truth to hold, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I think life is not a fairy tale. It's it's real and the children we bring into the into the world are real people who will choose their own path and are not copies of ourselves. 
and and that and that that is also their destiny like that that's how it is supposed to be um even if my child does not exactly go in the path that i dreamed but like but i gave them their existence and and they have their their shine that they bring to the world even if it's not exactly the way i want i wanted or or envisage it to be i, I think that's that has a value value in itself and and maybe that's my challenge and that's their challenge you know my challenge is is to love that child as they are on on their path and their child is to go their their challenge is to go on this particular path uh, and and face whatever whatever corrections that they have to bring into the world it's not it's not this like um you know the, the facebook version of of life with this, this happy family photo and everyone's you know so happy and everything's good and easy and smooth that's not real the real life is the the challenges and and when when we talk about challenge and it's hard and everything i don't mean it's hard and it's miserable necessarily or that it's hard and it's a, it's a chore and it's a burden and life is just about being a slave hard is also good hard is also pleasurable there's a there's a deep pleasure in putting effort into something uh and, and including sometimes sometimes it's frustrating sometimes it's difficult but but to say that that i've really uh, I, i've invested in this child it's been difficult they've given me a, a run for my money but like i've maintained that connection a child that has been let's say rebellious and difficult but I, I still have a connection. They still know that I love them. They still know that I'm there for them. That's an amazing achievement. And there's a, there's a, a deep satisfaction, I think, in that. Yeah. So I think that our understanding of what success or joy looks like needs to be shifted. Our, we have to kind of have a different mindset. Within the same topic, you know, families, raising large families, can you maybe share an idea or two or how we could bring um, more joy or into our home so that we are coming from a space of thriving versus surviving? Well, I think we we really have to be prepared for our interactions with our kids. Like um, if, if before the kids come home from school or before you come home um, to see the kids, to, to be in your mind prepared that I'm, I'm coming into the home. The home is the sanctuary, is, is the place that everything begins, that this, where I create the tone that will... Will will set a direction for my children for the rest of their life. So, to be really aware of that, so you're not coming in exhausted from the day or just fed up or like, come on, just get, get inside, take your bag off the floor, stop th throwing your shoes around, or you know, not not just to get getting annoyed at everything, but like being being conscious that a child is coming home from their day, you're coming home from your day, and you want to create as positive an interaction as possible in in those few hours that you have. Um, every day I think I think there's being aware of it because we are tired we are exhausted and we do get frustrated and that's normal but if if you preempt that a bit uh that that will help you know the dinner table has to be an event you know that, that, that this is where, where where you talk and you connect uh you know it shouldn't be just on Shabbos it should certainly be on Shabbos but but should be should be if you can every every night to to spend time with the kids D bedtime should be a conscious moment where you're you're telling a story. A bedtime story is so powerful. It's it's a moment of connection. Uh, they remember. They, they've gone they've gone to bed feeling loved. Uh, I think that these these everyday interactions, as as, as much as we can make them uh, positive and and thought out, uh, the better. And and 
again, this is hard. We're, we are, we are tired after our day, and we have, we we have things that we need to do, and we need to move on. And you know, I get impatient sometimes when I I know I've got a meeting coming up, and I'm, I'm and it's nighttime. I've got to get the kids into bed, and they're running around, and and they're not not listening. And you know, I could get very worked up at, the, at those moments. But if I create this sort of tension, if, if going to bed or, or, or coming to dinner or doing your homework, or if, if everything's a tension and everything's a, like this sort of being on top of them, get, get on with it. But it's because of my needs, because I, I know I've got to go out and everything. The kids are going to feel that and they're going to they're going to feel that they're, they're second rate. Whereas if I if I spend that time calmly and I and I understand them on their level. A three-year-old is going to run around and not listen. That's, that's what a three-year-old does. Like they don't care that I've got a meeting in in five minutes. It doesn't they don't understand that world? So if if I'm there for them on their level, uh, then I think those those interactions can be can be really memorable. That 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 creates you know it's it's not the big events necessarily that create the connection and the positivity. It's the everyday everyday you know driving to school um, with music and and singing. Yeah, and and you know joy in 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 your face, and they see it and they reflect it. They they, they know the first look when when they come into the car or they come into the house. What's your first look? Do do you notice them walking in, or you are, you are on the phone and you, you know you sort of just nod to them, to, you know to go and go and eat something. If you're if you're welcoming them home and they see a smile on your face when they walk in the door, they feel valued. They feel I'm loved. Like this is my place. It, it makes a huge difference. These small things make a huge difference. Much they make much bigger difference than the big trip at the end of the year where you take them overseas somewhere. You know that's nice. That's fun, but it's the everyday smile I think that will make the real impact. Yeah, that's very true. The environment that that we set. Um. So let's talk about just for a moment about teens. Parenting is you know, quite a challenge, but throw in some teens and you're, you know, you're set for a more bumpy ride. And it seems like teenagers today are struggling with more, you know, more than ever before. What's something that's important for parents to keep in mind when they're dealing with their teens? And what's a really important mindset around parenting teens today? I think that it's the challenge of allowing freedom while still giving guidance and boundaries. You know, that, that's the teenage years are where you're exploring, you're finding yourself, you're trying to disconnect a bit from your parents and find your own way. And and they test the boundaries and that's challenging. They, they themselves with themselves, they're going through all types of changes within themselves and, and it's confusing for them. And I guess as, as parents, we want to keep close, we want to keep a connection. We want to we be there for them and we want to direct them in the right way. At the same time, they want to feel a certain level of trust that we trust them and that we we do we do give them a bit of independence a bit of freedom um, we're treating them already a little bit more adult we're not treating them like they like they when they were 5 years old and so i guess it's it's finding that balance where yeah they're going to make certain mistakes and we have to let them make some wrong decisions even though you can see it happening yeah you have to give that little bit of freedom Without, of course, uh, allowing them to endanger themselves, you have to you have to be still be a parent, and and they they want a parent. I think, uh, as much as a teenager wouldn't would never admit it, they want to know that there's somebody who cares about them and is is watching over them. But at the same time, they also want to know that they're being treated like an adult. And so it's that that delicate balance of knowing how how much freedom to give, without letting letting them just uh, go wild. Right. 
And that's that's really hard. And I think it's also a very personal line for each person. It's different. It's going to look different for each child and it's going to look different for each parent. And that's that's a real difficult um, measuring stick to figure out. Mm. Yeah. And, and conversing, I think being open with them and conversing with them and saying, I want to be able to trust you and I want to give you more, more freedom. And so if, if when I see that you use that freedom responsibly, I'm, I'm more comfortable to give you more. Right. But, really connecting with them and talking as like an equal in some ways, like letting them feel like that we value their opinions and we're listening to them. And yet we're still a parent. Yeah. And it's a shift because, because they weren't that a few years ago, they were a little kid and they're still a little kid in some ways. And so it, for us, it's, it's a big shift, you know, like we, once you get reach a certain age, you know, you're not, you're not changing so much like the kids are, the kids are changing every couple of years so much. We're sort of like a bit more static. So it's, it's hard to adjust. You know, you you just got the idea of of being a good parent to a toddler, and suddenly you've got to be a parent to a teenager. It's it's a it's a, it's a big shift, and sometimes you're still a parent to a toddler as well as to a teenager, and so to shift from one to the other is is not so easy. But but we need to because otherwise they they're going to feel it. We can't you know bunch them all into 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 one category of the kids. Right, uh, that's a really good point. I mean. What would you say to somebody who has a child, let's say, who's on their own path and they are, you know, accepting where their child's at, this teenager, and at the same time, they're, you know, they have to make accommodations for this child, but they're still living in their home. And then they have other children that they're still trying to raise with their values and still trying to parent with certain expectations and stuff. And the same idea is true there. What, you know, what would you say to a parent that's having a hard time figuring out how do I have one expectation from one child and yet not from another? How do I explain this to these children? I think that to to treat each child as an individual is is only a plus. It's not it's not it's not a it's not a negative. And and to express that and to say that that I I see each one of my children as their own neshama and their own individual person with their own path. And I, I want the best for each one of you. And each stage, you've got you, you've got different challenges. And I want to be there for you and allow you to to be the best you can in in each stage. And so, for one child, it might be that for for them right now, I need to uh, allow this. And for you, that wouldn't be the best thing. I want the best for you. Uh, I think I think that won't always work, but 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 it's the truth. Right. And we can say that to our other children. I mean, I I would think it's okay to share that with with a child that's asking questions to be open and honest with them about yeah. that's where this child's at. I mean, you don't want to talk about the other child to the child, but you want to respectfully say each child's on their own path and journey. Each of them is different. We have different expectations from each child. Though some children are so black and white, they feel like well, everything should be equal. Like everything should be expected the same from me as from this one. You know, they that might be a harder challenge to explain it to that child, but I think it's it's it is doable. It has to be explained. Well, Kids want fairness. They have a very yes. strong sense of fairness. And so they they first see that if, if they're being treated differently, that's not fair. Like, it's not fair that, right. why is he allowed to do that? And I'm not allowed to do that. It's right. not fair. And I think, and that's and that's coming from a good place, that that sense of fairness and justice is a, is a very positive thing that we don't want to quash in any way. But we want to explain that, no, it's, it's not that it's not fair. It's that each one of you is different and has different needs. And... And so what's fair is to do the right thing for each one. Right. Fairness is not just all the same. It's the same idea with Yiddishkeit. When you explain the idea of a role of a woman and a man, it's not equality isn't that everyone's doing the same thing. It's what's right for each person and the role that they play. 
um, it is the same idea. Let's pip, let's move to a different topic for a minute, if you're okay with that. Um, sure. Marriage, you know, Gottman's Institute has lots of data and research done about marriage. And one of the things they say is that um, they say that disdain is the single worst ingredient for a marriage. Um, in your experience, what would you say? I mean, that was just like the negative. I'm saying in your experience and you're working with people, what do you think is the most important ingredient for a beautiful, successful, happy marriage? I think there has to be um, a real willingness to be open to the otherness of the other. In other words, we we grew up thinking everyone's like us, and uh, and then we learn that people are different. And but the person we marry, we sort of we think we've got so much in common. Uh, we're so aligned, we're so connected. So you know we're we're like we're like two two halves of one soul, right? So we're like we're like the same being. But in actual fact, those two halves are, are two opposite halves, and the other person really is an other. And I think I think it's it's essential to to not just accept that, but to celebrate that, to 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 enjoy the 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 clash of, of male female and of two of two human beings, and uh, and so to really I guess that's what respect really means. Respect means that I honor the fact that you are a different person to me, with a different opinion and different way of looking at things and a different way of experiencing things that is just as valid and as real as the way I see it. Um, and I think, uh, I think in, 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 in good relationships, probably the majority of, um, misunderstandings and tensions that we have is because we don't always recognize that, that like there, there really is another way of looking at it and experiencing it. So you have to be open to another view. If you think only my way is the right way, there's, there isn't room for another person's opinion or you're destined to have unhappiness but if you're willing to be open and say well maybe maybe there's another way of looking at this maybe there's another way of doing this right so i mean an example would be like when when my wife gets upset at me um because of something i said but i but but no i didn't say that i i didn't say that at all like why are you upset at me because i that's not what i meant so i'm insisting like that i know what i said and it's your problem that you misunderstood me because that's not what I said and not what I meant. But if I stop and think about it, what I said could be construed a different way by a different person. Like maybe my words to me were really clear, but to somebody else is not so clear. And so instead of defending myself and, and, and saying, well, it's your problem because you misunderstood me to say, actually, you understood me the way you understand things, which is also a valid way of understanding. Now I realize I need to explain myself a bit differently or say it, say it a bit differently. And 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 allow for that. I think that's, you know, you can't be in a relationship with an extension of yourself. That's that's not a relationship. It's that it's a different person. And that difference is what makes the relationship exciting. Yes. Okay, so what is the best question you ever received that you enjoyed the most? I really love one that I got. I, I when I was in the early days of writing these questions and answers, I was I was on a, a website that um, it was called allexperts.com, where it had experts on any topic uh, in the world, from gardening to uh, medical issues, 
to religion. And I saw there was Judaism and there was somebody under Orthodox Judaism who was answering questions. And I saw you could just you could just volunteer to be an expert. They don't test who's an expert. Anyone could do it. Wow. And so I thought, okay, I'll do it. And I became an expert overnight. And so you the way it worked was people submitted questions that I got an email alert that there was a question, but it didn't have any details of the person. I was all anonymous. So I would post the answer to the website. They would receive it, but there was no direct contact. So I never knew who was asking. It was very, very anonymous. So I got really interesting questions there. And one of them was a guy who said that um, he was born Jewish. He had he had a bris and a bar mitzvah. Uh, however, he has completely abandoned all Jewish practice. And he has, has married a non-Jewish person. Uh, he doesn't believe in God, doesn't fast on Yom Kippur. He, he eats bacon for breakfast. Uh, he's requested that he should not be buried in a Jewish cemetery when he dies. It's in his will. So he's, my, he says, my question is, can I officially consider myself not Jewish? Hmm. What a question. So I was I was I was amazed and uh, by this question I thought what a what a beautiful question I so I I, I wrote back and I said I'm sorry I I really I really can't help you like you've done everything to be not Jewish like you've completely got rid of any observance you've you've married a non-Jew even in your death you don't want to be recognized as a Jew you've done you've done everything and after all that you contact a rabbi to ask if you can be not Jewish. Like I said, you remind me of the, of the kid who ran away from home, but ran around the block because the parents didn't let him cross the road by himself. So he kept running around the block. Like you've, you've tried to give it up and you come to a rabbi. I said, you're as Jewish as me. You're as Jewish as the chief rabbi. You're as Jewish as Moses. Like you can't get away from it. And so so then ra rather than try to run away from your deepest identity, why don't you embrace it? Mm. Very powerful question. It's the Pentelian. Yeah. And and it, it was it was a real honest question. And it, it, from the question, you see yeah. the answer itself. Yeah. Okay. What would you say is the most difficult question you ever received? The most challenging that you had a hard time with? I mean, I've had a lot, a lot of always the hardest questions are, uh, you know, tragedy and people going going through difficult times, and it's it's always difficult to to answer them because when someone's going through pain, they're not looking for an explanation or a rationalization, you know, uh, they're looking for comfort and they're looking for some direction, and they're, they're always the most difficult. One one of the most fascinating ones I got was a, a young young woman who had lost her husband uh, not long after uh, her marriage. And so she she needed to do chalitza, which is the, the you know, the Torah law that says that if, if a husband dies uh, without children, so then his widow uh, is required to m marry one of his brothers in order to have a child that will be named after the, the the departed brother, or if they don't want to marry, so then a brother has to do a ceremony called chalitza, which is a releasing, releasing to her to be able to marry anybody else. Uh, 
and that ceremony is is done uh, quite a quite an, a strange ceremony of where um, he wears a shoe that she takes off his shoe. She unstraps his shoe. She spits in front of him. And this is all done in front of the basin that says that this, this will be done to somebody who does not build his brother's house. And then she can marry anybody. So this, this young woman had lost her husband tragically. And so needed to do chalitza. Today, we don't do the marriage part. We only do chalitza in such a case where she's released. Um, but her husband's brother was not yet bar mitzvah. So she had to wait um, a year or so for him to be bar mitzvah to be able to do the ceremony of release for her. And so she wrote to me out of, out of the blue, just like, she just wanted to understand what is, what am I doing? What, what, what does this all mean? Like she's, she was happy, willing, willing to do it, but she's, she's gone through this sort of tragedy and she wants to know what's the meaning behind this ceremony. So I mean, this was a hard question because it doesn't come up all that often. Like, it's not a it's not a very common scenario, and also like the question was on the one hand a technical question, like what's what's the meaning behind this ceremony, but it's also coming from somebody who's who's gone through quite a quite a difficult time, and so I, I did I did a bit of research and looked into it, and I found some really fascinating ideas in in the Zohar and in Kabbalistic writings that the whole idea of the brother marrying the widow is that we want to bring the soul of the departed back in a way in the reincarnation and reincarnations tend to stay within the family and so if the brother marries his brother's uh, widow the child that will be born is almost guaranteed to be the soul of that brother who passed away young that he should be continued in in, wow. in that soul but that doesn't always work out that the brother wants to marry the widow or the widow wants to marry the brother. So the chalitza ceremony is the word chalitza means release. It's not just releasing the woman to be able to marry who she wants. It's also releasing the soul of the brother that is waiting to come down in, in this form. And so the untying of the shoe and the spitting <laughs> is it, both of those acts are, are releasing the parts of the brother's soul that are connected to his living brother and to his widow. By taking off the shoe, it takes the, 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 the soul from the brother. By the spitting, it releases the soul from the widow. And that soul is then able to be reincarnated elsewhere uh, and, and continue its journey. And the brother and the widow can also continue their journey and, 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 and move forward, knowing that they've done a service to the soul of the departed brother. Wow. So I explained this to her, and I believe it it gave a bit of comfort that like there's there's a meaning to what she's doing, uh, and it's at the one on the, on the one hand recognizing the loss that that she's gone through, but also a release to to be able to move forward in in a positive way. Wow, that's a good that's that's a hard one. I want to finish off with um, a final question about anxiety. Anxiety is something that, you know, I think everyone has some anxiety. That's what helps us survive. It's a survival mechanism. Um, but at the same time, too much anxiety is a challenge to live with. We can't, you know, we're constantly worried. We want to live in the present. And we know that Hashem's running the world. And we knew, we know that we need to stay aligned with this idea. Hashem has our back and everything that he's doing is good for us. 
What I'm looking for is how can we actually live with this idea? How can we keep this idea front and center in our mind? Like, do you have any tools or tips or answers to actually implement this idea? We could know this knowledge, like, and we can learn Sharbatach and we can learn this idea and have faith. But at the same time, things keep happening and it's constantly testing these ideas. So how can we really tap into this in a way that we can actually keep it front and center in our heart and in our mind? Well, something that I've utilized that's helped me uh, is something that has, is very much in fashion now, and that's breathing. Uh, the, I mean, we, we all breathe, right? And like, we've all been breathing for many, many thousands of years, but like actually like slowly breathing and thinking along with the breath. Um, you know, it, it's, it says about the Jewish people in, in Mitzrayim when Moshe came and said it's time to be redeemed, that they couldn't hear him because of their shortness of breath and the hard work that they were doing. Meaning, the, because they weren't breathing properly out of their exhaustion, so they couldn't hear the, the good news. That <laughs> the Geula is here, it's time to leave, we're going out of, out of Egypt. So... If, if that's true of shortness of breath, so so elongating our breath and breathing slowly, and and being present in the in in our breath, I think that that can really help us, especially if we use that time. And this is this can be just a few minutes a day in the beginning of the day, uh, at the end of the day, the middle of the day, uh, a few times a day, but even just for a few minutes, slowly breathing in and out, and. We know the breath is the neshama, right? It says, that Hashem breathes in us the breath of life. We're actually feeling Hashem and our neshama at that time. Like it's, it's, a, it's a palpable experience of life. Breath is something that is, it's involuntary. You can't not breathe. If you hold your breath, you can hold your breath for a while and then you'll, you'll involuntarily breathe. You, 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 you can't not breathe. And so... That experience of breathing, you're experiencing a higher power right now in, in a physical way. You're breathing in and breathing out. Your life force is that's divine. You're actually feeling Hashem at that moment. And so if you if you do that for a few minutes and are conscious of that, what, what I do, I, I do a Yudke Vavke breathing. So I, I breathe out and count to 10, which is Yud. Then I hold for five, which is Hey. And then I breathe in for six, Vav, and then I hold for five. At, at first, you might have to count quite quickly to do that, but you get used to, you know, breathing that slowly. So slowing down the breath in Yudke Vavke and feeling that when, when I breathe out, so I, I have in mind that uh, I'm I'm like sort of emptying out myself, like the Yud, which is Bittal, like I'm just emptying out myself, like opening myself to Hashem, then holding it, is like experiencing that that emptiness for a bit. Then breathing in is Hashem giving me new energy. Not it's not me. It's Hashem giving me new soul energy. That's 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 the 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 breathing in uh, for for six, and then holding it, experiencing that the new energy that I've received. So opening myself, which is the yud, and holding it, and then receiving new energy and holding it, and all this. I'm counting and I'm breathing, so I'm, I'm experiencing it. It's not, it's not a theory that I read in a book that, that Hashem is my soul. I'm feeling right now the, the breath, which is Hashem's breath, which is my energy, my, my life. I, I find when I do that, 
it, it brings it all alive. It all brings all those ideas alive and, and it's palpable. And, and so there's obviously it's just scientifically calming to breathe slowly. It's just, it's just, it's just a phys physiological thing. That's just the breathing, even if with, without all the Yudke Valke stuff, but, but with the thinking and that, that, that concentrating and, and focusing on it, it, uh, it takes for me, a lot of the Hasidus that we learn, it, it makes it much more real. And I believe that's what the whole Tanya and the whole, whole Hasidus is about, is about his boniness, about contemplation, about, about feeling it. Uh, and uh, and so for me that 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 can be very calming. It doesn't mean that five minutes later I'm not going to be anxious about something, but I was calm for five minutes and and I can go back to it. I can I can always go back to the breathing, and 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 calm myself down. Uh, for for me that works. Imagine if we were teaching these ideas in actuality in our classrooms and our in our schools, like showing our students how they can tap into that, and. You know, we don't have to wait for the schools to do it. We could do this with our children too. Like I'm thinking about this is like, we can do this alongside our children and it could be so, so healing and so, so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that tool with I, us. One of my kids tonight couldn't sleep and came down to them. I'm not, I'm not, I can't sleep. I'm not, you know, thinking too much, you know, like, so I said, so breathe, do, do, do slow breathing. And I've, I've done this with him and with other kids. And I think he's asleep now. <laughs> well, hopefully it's almost 12 30. Um, okay. I know that was my last question, but I have one last question. I know that you did not grow up in a religious and Hasidic home. What was the one thing that literally brought you and made you make that decision to choose this lifestyle for yourself? I mean, I imagine it's one thing, but I could be wrong. I, I don't think there was one particular thing. I mean, but, but there were, there were small things that I observed. I, I became, it was after my bar mitzvah that I started becoming, becoming religious. Um, I grew up in a, in a, a sort of somewhat traditional Jewish home, uh, but definitely not a, not a from home at all. Uh, I wasn't really, I didn't even meet from people till after my bar mitzvah, but there was, there, there was something about, there was, here's one, here's one little story. I, there was a religious family here in Sydney, the Letterman family is their name, and they were the first religious family that I really had exposure to. And I really liked going over to their to their house, and I loved their little kids. They had a lot of little kids, and I um, I remember once bringing a little bag of candies for the kids to their house, and uh, the four year old answered the door, and I, and I gave him the bag of lolly. I said, "This is for you," and he looked at it. He looked at me, and he ran to his mother. And he asked her, are these kosher? And she said, yes. And he, he, he knew that I maybe didn't know kosher like at that stage. And so he was wanted to be sure. And so she said, they are kosher. So he said, can I have one? And she said, yes. So he took one and he made a bracha and he ate the lolly. Now I was, I was a 13 year old at the time and observing a four year old who for them the whole world is a bag of candies like that's that's the the, the greatest thing you could ever have but for him at, at age four to have a presence of mind to first of all check that it's kosher and then even when it is kosher to to say a blessing and and then eat it i said this is incredible like that, that this is something special to to we we know we know now that that 
to delayed gratification is is one of the greatest powers that a person has uh and that discipline will will make a person into a mensch and he here's a four-year-old who does that without thinking it's a simple thing and you, you could see it in, in any from home and it's, it's it's so not a big deal but it is a big deal uh and and we, we shouldn't underestimate it and it that impacted me very much and that was just that was just one illustration of something i saw there is such meaning in this lifestyle. I didn't have a, a miserable upbringing. I had a very happy family, happy upbringing, but there wasn't meaning and depth to it. Whereas here, this four-year-old had a had a depth that I I said I want that. I want that for my kids one day. I get that. It's a beautiful thing. And there's a lot of delayed gratification built into our system. You think about it: milchex to flashex, flashex to milchex. I mean, so many different instances i never i never even thought about that idea that's a that's a really powerful concept i want to yeah, thank you so much we've been, we've been taught to wait and 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 we we wait for milk and inflation we wait to make it to, to make a bracha we you know taras mishpacha is waiting and and we're waiting for mashiach and should come already that's right amen may it be speedily in our days thank you so much for giving me your time so late at night i really appreciate it and i'm sure many people will find lots of meaning and we'll get a lot out of it so thank you Thank you, Hatzlacha. Thank you for having me.